But first, we're going to take you to the early days of the United States, all the way back to 1824. It had been about 40 years since the end of the American Revolution, and people were figuring out how to commemorate and remember the war. Here's scholar Sarah Purcell. The notion was there's something of a feeling of crisis or declension as the men of the revolution were getting older and starting to die off in 1824. And a notion that the nation owed these men sort of one last gasp of gratitude before they were gone. So Congress decided to invite an old war hero to tour the country as a way to memorialize the revolution's legacy. But the person they invited actually wasn't an American. It was the French officer Marquis de Lafayette. And Lafayette was a perfect symbol of this because he, for one thing, had such a close relationship with George Washington. So he was associated with Washington ever since the revolution. And also because he symbolized uh, international approval of the United States and, you know, French support for the United States in the revolution. So Lafayette came overseas and traversed from state to state, stopping in cities, small towns, and battlefields along the way. Many of them had very large, basically, receptions, public parades, uh, rituals of all kinds, usually a ball where he would be celebrated by the women of the communities. And just thanking him as a way to also, by proxy, thank the generation of the revolution. Partly he was good for this because he had been so young when he joined the revolution. He was only 19 when he came to the United States and became an officer of the Continental Army. And so he was a little younger and more robust than some of the other founders who had already passed or were about to pass away. And so he was able to undertake this tour because he was slightly younger. And he also made a big effort to connect with average veterans. So on the battlefield at Yorktown, for instance, he held a receiving line and elderly men came out of the crowd and shook his hand. And newspapers all over the country reported on this, told stories about old men weeping in sympathy and as they remembered their years in the Continental Army or the militia. Sarah says Lafayette was meant to represent a certain nostalgia for revolutionary America and that his tour helped shape the public memory of the era. A public memory is a whole collection of behaviors and cultural expressions. It's really the memory of a whole society put together. So it includes commemorations and things like parades and monuments and a whole constellation of cultural ideas about the past that people use to make sense out of the present. It's the way that societies interact with their past to give it meaning in the present. Now, Lafayette's sweeping tour across the country happened in 1824, but Sarah says people were creating a collective memory of the revolution decades before that. Well, it actually started really as soon as the revolution itself started. Memories begin to be formed even while the experiences are still happening. There's a whole series of 
local and national holidays that celebrated the memory of the revolution, things like monument building, parades, and other kinds of civic celebrations, as well as a whole host of print culture and uh, speeches that people gave to have this kind of shared sense of the kinds of things that should be remembered about the past. I gather, you know, even basically funerals and eulogies sort of fall into this camp of ritual. Yeah, 100%. So funerals and eulogies obviously are about remembering the dead, the person who has died. And they had a longstanding precedent in colonial America to serve kind of a community function that was often religious to put the person's life in context and give it a meaning for the community. Probably the greatest example of that is George Washington, where funerals were held for him all over the country when he died in 1799, including funeral processions with mock coffins and all kinds of, you know, draping of black cloth and and other things that really presage even larger public funerals to come in the 19th century. But it was a way to bring together communities to mourn for the past, but also to glorify the past through that funeral ritual. Now, you, you just talked about respect and you've talked about praise. And I gather that gratitude is also a part of what's being expressed during these moments and rituals. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly in the early Republic, uh, post-revolutionary period, the classical value of gratitude is something that really took on a deep patriotic and political meaning. And so gratitude is something that the public not only feels, so it's not only my responsibility as an American citizen to just feel gratitude, but to actually show gratitude by paying respect, gratitude, meant that patriotism itself and reverence for the sacrifices of the military was part of what made America great, the willingness to come together and grant veterans respect. I would assume that in some way or another, the disenfranchised made use of public memory. I, I would assume that as forgotten as they were, African-American veterans probably had their own ways of claiming some ownership into this larger message. Is that the case? Oh, absolutely. Because there's great cultural capital to be gained out of that common public memory. And so you're totally right that disenfranchised people can use that as a tool to associate themselves with the nation. And African-Americans certainly did that. Starting right after the revolution, uh, you see it in lawsuits from black men and women suing for their own freedom and using both revolutionary political rhetoric and the memory of black male military service for the American cause as some way that disenfranchised African-Americans can really try to leverage their own freedom and participation in both civic and political life in the United States very, very early, as early as the 1780s. So is that the sort of thing that you mean when you write about the democratization of public memory? Yes, it is. Um, the fact that once you have public memory of the Revolutionary War and of the American Revolution as a very powerful political concept, initially it was used for men like George Washington, you know, the, the very revered people we now know as the founders. But once that language is out there, it's available to be spoken by people who also want the respect and participation of and in the nation. And so people like impoverished former veterans who 
need food. They're able to talk about, you know, look, I have these scars on my body that I received in the revolution and I don't deserve to waste away. Or um, African-Americans suing for their freedom. They're also able to uh, mobilize that language. Now, it doesn't mean that the memory itself is completely democratic and just equally available to every person, but that it is a, a tool that people can seize hold of to try to leverage some political capital. We're talking about public memory as a unifying thing. We're talking about public memory as a democratizing kind of a thing, as a tool. But obviously there would have been a lot of disagreement about what that public memory was and what it meant. How did that break down into factions or opposing sides? What were they contesting? Yeah, there's all kinds of record of people arguing and contesting memories of the revolution. And it can take a lot of different forms. Of course, in the 1790s, when the very first era of political contest between the, the two first political parties in the United States happened, each of them used a lot of memory of the revolution to argue that their interpretation of American politics was, of course, completely correct and that their opponents were violating the proper memory of the revolution. And that broke down even to the point of of which holidays the parties celebrated the most. You know, the Democratic Republicans tended to celebrate the 4th of July and have very partisan-flavored celebrations. Uh, Federalists uh, engaged in celebrations of George Washington's birthday and battle anniversaries. And these were really ways to just say that you were being nonpartisan and celebrating the past, but while simultaneously playing your opponents for not being properly patriotic. Right. And commemorating events that allow you to highlight things that you can claim as yours. So the Federalists claiming George Washington, you know, how can you protest celebrating George Washington? And then that ropes people in in some way exactly. to sharing that public memory. Exactly. You also see in the 1820s uh, when the Bunker Hill Monument was being proposed in Charlestown, Massachusetts, that people proposing that uh, put a lot of time and effort and money into designing the monument. It was probably the first very, very major large monument to the Revolutionary War. There were other smaller ones before it. And then some people writing into newspapers saying, look, we shouldn't be spending all this money on a pile of stone when uh, soldiers need pensions and there are men starving in the streets. Uh, and you're putting all this money into blocks of granite uh, that are supposed to preserve the memory of the revolution when really we owe that recompense to the soldiers themselves. So sometimes it, it took a more economic turn in the arguments over the memory. Now, how did women either engage in this conversation or use it as a tool in the way that we've just been talking about? Yeah, women were a huge part of really all of these rituals, monument building, all of the things that I've described, parades. Women were often making the arrangements. They were playing symbolic roles often, but still it's a way in which they were present at battle anniversaries, honestly serving food at large gatherings. And it's not just that women showed up with the snacks, but that they would be publicly praised and that was seen as a ritualistic part of the proper political celebration of a battle anniversary, for instance. So it's it's important for uh, women to provide sustenance for the men. Women were definitely framed as one of the most important parts of society, the keepers of memory, if you will. It's women's job to remember the war, remember the sacrifice of the revolution. And to pass it on through kids, right? Right, pass it on to their children, exactly. 
Now, we've been talking about all of this commemoration and even nostalgia for the Revolutionary War, but that last word <laughs> raises a question. This is a memory of a war. So is there any of the ugliness of war kept here, or is it really purely a kind of sanitized, publicized version of the war? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of it is pretty sanitized. Um, I do think that the public memory tended to stress the glory of war and sacrifice in kind of a generalized term. So, for instance, uh, Joseph Warren, the image that we still remember of Joseph Warren is John Trumbull's painting of him dying heroically and expiring in a beautiful shaft of light at the Battle of Bunker Hill, uh, when in fact he was shot in the face at rather close range and um, his body had to be identified by dental records afterwards. But that's not what appears in the beautiful heroic history painting that has lasted until today as a memory of martyrdom in the revolution. So it is about death, but it is sanitized to a certain degree. And, and I do think that that has created a pattern for um, American history where warfare and heroic military sacrifice is something that is so valued as part of our national identity that it is seen as a very positive thing. But every generation kind of has to learn for itself the ugly side of war. But that's become a little bit more apparent in the 20th century when the sort of movement for soldiers themselves to reckon with uh, what we now would call PTSD, for instance, and to give a more realistic picture to society. But um, there were some memoirs where soldiers did talk about difficult experiences and certainly violence. There were even women who told the story of, you know, their children dying in the Revolutionary War or losing their husbands. But that that was seen as, for the most part, more a personal loss and not as much a part of the national story. Now, you just said each generation needs to relearn for themselves or, or reshape, I guess, for themselves what these public memories of the past are. So in a way, is nostalgia a form of education? And, and educational in the sense of um, educating people about the, the sort of public memory of the past and what it meant. I, I do think nostalgia is one of the drivers of why events from the Revolutionary War or from, you know, 200 plus years ago uh, still are important. And it, it is something that might drive people to have a real interest in those events and to drive them to learn more and to be educated. But I do think sometimes pure nostalgia takes the place of education and maybe is mm -hmm. a little bit less informed than it might be. And sometimes nostalgia can also be distracting. So it, it again, it has positive uses to hold people together, but it also can drive people apart. And if, if people are prone to this kind of um, idealized vision of the past, then sometimes they're missing the details that might actually tell them something about the present that is different than the nostalgic haze would indicate. Sarah Purcell is the chair of the History Department at Grinnell College. She's also the author of Sealed with Blood, War, Sacrifice, and Memory in Revolutionary America. 